Morning. I <laughs> hope everyone's doing well this morning. Uh, Jared and I want to take a moment and just express our, our gratitude for journeying with us through this series. Uh, we recognize that um, we've been uh, handling some, some tough topics and, and wrestling with the ideas and the challenges of sexual brokenness and, and how that's kind of intruded um, in, in all of our lives in some way. So we wanted to kind of capstone this series by actually hearing from many of you about what's on your heart and maybe even some gaps of things that we might have missed in those regards. And so this is kind of the, uh, the end of the series, but what Jared and I would want to tell you is it's also the beginning of more conversations. So we're, we're open. We want to hear from you, even as this FAQ or questions that have come our way generate more questions from you. Again, um, there's infinite accessibility. We want you guys to feel like you can come and talk about these things as we wrestle together. Jared and I, as your pastors, have um, uh, thoughts about these specific topics and feel like we're uh, engaging in these answers through the context of God's Word. We will tell you that there are probably other God-fearing, Bible-believing believers that might have a different nuance or a different take on what we think. But we want to tell you kind of where we're coming from on those things and just open the door for further conversations. So we've got, we've got seven questions plus that we're going to jump into, uh, and some of them are uh, a little bit easier than others, but uh, I want to jump right in, and uh, I decided to take the first one because it's probably the easiest. Um, so there you go, just so you know. Um, and, and the question really, if we could put it up on the screen, is, is how early should I be talking to my children about the issues of sex and sexual brokenness and pornography? What things can I do to help the conversation not be awkward? So uh, here's where I would start in thinking about that reality. All of our children are daily picking up cues from the youngest among us, the, the toddlers. They're encountering their world through the experiences and the environment in which they live. And so I would say that even prior to talking, husbands and wives, parents, are setting the model for beginning to talk about these conversations by how they love each other. So we're, we're setting the framework for what uh, sexual health and intimacy looks like by teaching and training them on a visual way about how the parents are able to interact with one another. So as they pick up cues and are understanding these things, we already talk, and even schools talk from a very young age about appropriateness and inappropriateness, right? What's an okay touch and not an okay touch? And so we're, we're doing this based on degrees. We're coming to the realization that conversations are being had that are setting the foundation for having to be able to have the conversation about pornography, sexual sin, and sexual brokenness as they get older. So I think you need to have the conversation about all of those things, healthiness, intimacy, conversations, how, how parents interact with one another. Those things are happening from a very early age. Um, and, and I know from, from my girls, like we started to have the conversations uh, really from the framework of things that they're being inundated with at school. So ages of eight, nine, 10, they're having questions about issues of sexuality, um, sexual confusion, sexual brokenness. And so we want to be available and develop enough of a relationship where they can ask those questions, but then also 
um, laying the foundation from a very early age that we can um, explore those conversations so that it's not awkward because we've set the stage through a relationship with them that even though they're hard conversations to have, they tend not to be as awkward because they're coming from the standpoint of relationship. So that would be the way that I would start is what you're doing is you're building an environment where whatever needs to be talked about can be talked about because um, the parents are talking about it. And even if you're a single parent, you're still setting up the stage for what it looks like to have enough relational capital when those hard conversations need to come. You're prepared to have those conversations. Would you add anything to that? You have younger kids than I do. So what, yeah. how are you thinking about it? She hasn't asked any questions yet. Yeah. I, um, no, I, I would say even, even if it's, for, for one thing, just on the sex topic in general, I would not punt to the schools. Yeah. Like that should come from parents. Um, so it's probably earlier than you think. Um, but then also, I think even if it's not quite that talk yet, just an openness that there's no off-limits topics. So your kids feel freedom to come to you. And so, you know, and you can kind of preload that like, hey, if you ever hear a word you don't know, or a kid at school says something and you don't know what that is, like, just come ask me about it. And, and then as a parent, you got to be open and like make that a safe space to not just be like, oh, well, we don't talk about that, uh, but to actually engage and, and discuss what's right, what's wrong, what's, like Charlie said, healthy, unhealthy. Mm-hmm. And so I think you could start that very young uh, as just far as there not being an off-limits topic for you as a parent that mm-hmm. encourage them, hey, if you have questions, if you hear things you don't know, if you see something, you're not sure what you just saw, like, come talk to me, mm-hmm. like, you will not be in trouble. And just to build that in, I would say, really early. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, once again, I, I wouldn't punt to the schools uh, mm-hmm. to teach your, to your children about sex, uh, let alone, um, you know, the sexual brokenness components, the pornography components, you know, I would, I would take that task uh, on yourself as a parent that mm-hmm. you're going to educate your child mm-hmm. in what's right and what to expect. And so mm-hmm. I would start that, yeah, building, building it in so that conversation can happen. I think you can start that real young. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that that's the, you know, there's just a, a level of, um, they're, they're picking up on what we would consider embarrassing or shameful. So if we take that off the table and saying, look, we're, we're open to talk about these things because the Bible is very clear and talks a lot about these things, that it begins the discussion and the framework to, to feel like it's a safe environment. So, uh, and, and it'll still come as a surprise. I, I remember having conversations with my kids um, earlier than I expected to have to because they had questions about what they were seeing at school. So I felt a little bit um, behind the eight ball, and we continued to have those conversations, but it did open the door for us to be able to talk about those things. Um, so, you know, we, we'd love to believe that we can protect um, our ch- children's innocence um, for as long as possible, um, but I think that that's a, a bit of an illusion. Um, we, we have to step into the fact that we live in a world where innocence has been taken. There's brokenness everywhere, and so how do we engage from a gospel lens into those areas of brokenness? So uh, let's jump into question number two. Um, Both of you have talked extensively about the pervasiveness of pornography, how pervasive it is, and how easy it is to have access. What limits can I put in place for me, and what about guidance for social media access for my children? Jared? Yeah, I mean, I mean, that's the reality, and that's why we've kind of come to this point where we're talking about it so up front in, in front of the church is that it is everywhere. Mm-hmm. And, you know, week one, me and Charlie kind of shared our stories on when we were first exposed, mm-hmm. and I've just found through general conversation, like, most people have that story. And so it, it is a reality that um, almost everybody's being touched by it somehow. Uh, but, but yeah, as we've mentioned several times, it, it is kind of just to a different degree now because we're walking around with access in our pockets most of the time. And so, you know, I, I would encourage um, really open and honest conversations. If this is a struggle for you, you got to be open about 
how, how you're accessing it, and, you know, like we, we talked about a couple weeks ago, means and moments. Mm -hmm. So where are access points and are there recurring moments that you tend to be susceptible? And yeah, just get really serious about fighting it. I would say you got to be really intentional, which is hard, you know, because you have to be open about the struggle if you're going to actually engage in the fight. And so there are a lot of practical tools, um, you know, I would say, and I, and I mentioned it, uh, but if you have not heard uh, of the company Covenant Eyes, mm -hmm. it's one I suggest mm -hmm. uh, as far as internet accountability. Um, and so just Google that later. Uh, they have apps for your phone and tablets. They have um, a browser for your, your computers. And what it does, it, it's not a filter. So it's not going to block anything. I know sometimes that's always been a recurring thing as people have tried to put safeguards on the Internet. You get a filter and then it blocks, you know, a work website you need. This does not block anything. What it does, it logs all of your Internet traffic and then you set up an accountability partner and it sends them a, a report. And so I, I have found that a helpful tool in my life. It's on my phone. It's on my laptop. It's on my work computer. Um, you know, I, I want accountability in my life because I know I need those safeguards. Um, and so there are some practical things you can do. And, you know, I would encourage, you know, if, if there is something that is tripping you up and you can get rid of it, get rid of it. Hmm. You know, if cable TV is a problem, cancel cable. Hmm. You know, if high-speed Internet to your, in your home is a problem and you don't really need it, hmm. you, you have the option to get rid of a lot of things. We just have grown accustomed to uh, convenience. Um, and I'll say the same thing goes for the last part of the question is guidance for social media and access for my children. Um, I would encourage you to think through for your family how your family is going to operate. So not how your children's friends are operating or how mm -hmm. their parents are operating. And there's just a lot of evidence, um, not even on the pornographic front, but just on the um, insecurity front, like that mm -hmm. social media is not good for young children. It's probably mm -hmm. not good for most of us as adults either. And so I would be uh, very conscientious about what you let your children access. Just so you know, uh, if this is informative, uh, a lot of the social media companies do try to um, mitigate some of the content on their platform. If you do not know, Twitter does not. Twitter allows pornography on their platform, just so you know. So I would take that one, you know, right off immediately because it, it couldn't be unintentional and just a couple of clicks and you see something that you can't ever unsee. So Twitter's one I would just not allow children on at all. Um, you know, I'd be very careful about things like Snapchat um, and um, really any of the social medias I'd be very careful on. And so I would say a good rule as parents is, um, you know, I think we get too much into, oh, my kids have rights and privacy. Why? Um, <laughs> right. You know, and so I would encourage you to be very active um, in uh, knowing what's on their phones, no passwords you don't know, having access, not phones in the bedroom at night. Um, and maybe your kid will take that as being an overbearing parent. Um, I, I would say the cost um, will outweigh some of the consternation of, of a preteen uh, wanting everything that their friends have. So how, how have y'all done it with your girls? You're right. I mean, it's, it's worth it. It's, it's interesting. So f for us, our kind of tipping point was 16, zero social media until they were 16. Um, and having two girls, which is interesting, one is 16 and so uh, has Instagram, the other's 14 and feels like she should have it because she is more mature now than Naomi was when she was 14. And the answer is still no. Uh, so, you know, there's just that process of, and, and the studies that they've done, even internal studies with Facebook and Instagram, they actually had to um, testify before the Senate over these last couple of weeks. And one of the internal reviews that they found is Instagram um, is one of the most destructive 
uh, tools that is used for uh, young kids to feel bad about themselves and their own identity. Um, there's just so much comparison that goes on. And so just like as we think about even as extreme as it might sound, the question is, is what's the benefit? Um, and, and there's just a level of certainly you don't want your kids to always feel like they're the weird ones on the outside of things. But at the end of the day, um, I honestly, personally, I've seen very little benefit to social media in my own life. Like I read it sometimes. I'm on Facebook and I regret it almost every time. Just the amount of anger, every political season that comes up, everybody's got opinions. And so it's great to connect with friends and family in terms of pictures and things and what's going on. Um, but I just, um, there's just a lot of challenges that exist in those regards. And so I think that the question that we always ask ourselves is what's the fruit? You know, what's, what's the outcome of engaging in these types of things? Um, let me give you a scripture that's going to lead us into some of the next questions. And this is where it gets a little bit more uh, deep and, and intense. And so what we want to uh, do is kind of frame the next few questions that we wrestle with from the standpoint of what the word says. So Mark chapter 7 says this, uh, 7 verses 20 through 23. Um, and uh, I think it's critical for us to just keep this in mind. Uh, Jesus says, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For uh, from within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these evil things come from within that defile a person. So when we think about sexual brokenness and all these things, what we're really talking about is heart issues. We're talking about what's going on inside. And so when we talk about Facebook and Instagram, we're talking about the challenges of what's drawing us to those things. And a lot of it is insecurity, acceptance, being on the in crowd. And then you're exposed to things that, like Jared said, you can't take back. So like my, my kids, when they grow up and they become adults, they can make their own decisions for sure. But my, my kids won't ever be on Twitter. Like, there's just too, too much potential for, for, for damage being done that you can't unsee the stuff that's out there. And there's a lot of other websites which we're not going to give you. The last thing we want to do is arm you with things where you can find places that will just be destructive to you. But there's a lot of stuff out there that is just really damaging. And so, um, like he said, being we don't want to be helicopter parents, but we do want to be intentional. We've got to be involved in our kids' lives. And so we have access to our kids' accounts. We have access to our kids' phones. We can say at any one given time, hey, I need to read your texts. Um, our rule in, in our home is you don't ever send pictures to anybody, whatever the pictures are. Because once you send pictures to someone, they're out of your control. They can use those pictures for whatever they want. And so selfies and all of those things seem innocuous. But they can be used in destructive ways that really bring down how a person you know, views themselves. So we tell them that they can't send pictures of themselves to other people. Those are just kind of some rules that we've put in place to, to, to protect them in that regard. So. I think it might be helpful to also interject that uh, I think our encouragement um, would also be, you know, spouse to spouse. Mm. You really shouldn't have privacy from your spouse, you know, as far as an online presence goes or your phone goes, I, I would encourage like, yeah, any passcodes are, are, are known. Um, not a big deal if the other person picks up your phone and scrolls through it. I, I think that's just healthy. Um, it's not showing a lack of trust. It's showing care. And it does help with just accountability to think through, um, you know, even just 
relationships with the opposite sex or, you know, just what you're um, spending your time looking at. I, I think that's a, a healthy thing. And I would encourage, it might, might feel weird at first, but even spouse to spouse, I would say, like, don't, don't keep separate lives. Um, mm-hmm. Definitely on the Internet, um, you know, kind of integrate those things and make it normal practice that you're in each other's business because mm-hmm. you're sharing a life together. Mm-hmm. I, would, I would say that for spouses as well as uh, parents to children. Yeah, because sin wants us to hide. Like that's just what it, that's a desire, right? Sin moves us to isolation and hiding. So, um, you know, we're trying to, again, and Ephesians is going to tell us this as we move through this, but we, we need to allow these things to be upfront and exposed so that we're, we're very careful in protecting one another and protecting the, the, the God-given boundaries that are set in place. So if you're a youth or, uh, you know, and, and your, your parents are trying to be more active and involved, um, you know, for us as parents, I'll just tell you that when you start to be defensive, about us having access to those things, it's because we feel like you're hiding something. And so we're only gonna push harder, right? And so the point is, is just to say, like if there are things that are going on and there are secrets uh, that you have and things that you're carrying, like but bring those out now and, and, and let's deal with them in the light and find how the gospel can help us change those things. But when you start to isolate and hide and run, uh, it, it really sends off triggers in our minds that there's something off um, that you're trying to hide. And, and we want to help with finding freedom in those things. All right, so now we're going to jump in the next few questions. Um, and again, remember, heart issues, that's what we're going to continue. So we're, we're not dealing with superficial actions or behavior. We're going subterranean. And the subterranean part is we're dealing with what's really underneath the surface in the context of our own heart. So here's the question. In a marriage relationship, how do I process how pornography has impacted our relationship? How would you start that, Jared? Like what? Um... You know, I think one of the things we've been trying to do the past couple weeks is um, to just kick the door open as wide as possible that you're free to come struggle here. Mm -hmm. And we want to encourage that. Um, But but I think we also just need this space, if I can read into this a little bit, um, to recognize a a lot of times the situation is one spouse has been engaging with this and one has not. And then when that comes to light, it's a whole lot of hurt. Mm -hmm. And that's a reality. And we want to say, hey, come struggle here, come be open, come be honest. But we also have to recognize um, that that can cause a whole lot of hurt. There's a lot that comes with that, um, that bring it, bringing that sin into the light. And I know that usually is why a lot of times it's kept in the dark. And so, uh, you know, I, I think this is kind of a loaded question. I think it could be in, in so many different directions as far as scenario goes. But, but I would say it will be a process. You know, it's in there. Um, and I think any, any level of sin that we ultimately need to divulge mm-hmm. for our, our own good, for our, our life, um, yeah, there's probably going to be a process because nothing that we do is in a vacuum. It has an effect on the people around us, mm-hmm. uh, depending on the relationship, depending on just the scope. I, I, I would say counseling might be a really great first step to mm-hmm to start to deal with maybe some of the hurt that has occurred mm-hmm. or just some of the damage that has occurred um, and because that's what sin does. It does damage. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that's a starting point to just recognize, um, yes, yes, bring it into light, bring it into the light. That doesn't mean there's not going to be um, implications and consequences mm-hmm. and fallout of mm-hmm. us being open about our sin. Yeah, and I think that that's the counseling piece is critical. Like if it feels so unsettling, you know that there are things that need to be confessed and talked about as a as a couple uh, in a relationship, but it just feels like things might be toxic in the context of the married environment, 
then, then certainly counseling would be a place where we would, you know, you'd, you'd bring someone else in and help walk through the different things that are taking place in each individual as they're wrestling with the reality uh, of the sin that's occurred in their home. So here's, we got four little nuances that we want to add to this question. The first one is, my spouse is an unbeliever and doesn't see anything wrong with pornography. What do you do with that? Right? And so here it is. We're in a situation where you have a, a, someone who is a follower of Christ and someone who's not. And they have a very different gauge on what is normal and okay and what's not normal and okay. So in the context of those things, again, subterranean heart issue stuff, what we're going to be talking about is for the spouse that's a believer to share very openly and honestly about the struggle of what exists when someone else is engaging in pornography and talking about how it, it impacts how they see themselves, how it affects their own intimacy with one another, how it changes the dynamic of their own intimate relationship, and really beginning to discuss why a biblical view of sexuality is so important to the spouse that's a believer. So we're, we're, we're moving the gospel into the conversation of, you know, Jesus has something greater for us, uh, allowing and pray. I would say that the first place is just prayer, you know, that we're seeking the Lord's face to intrude in this situation and continue to develop an environment where there'd be a recognition of what's sin and what's unhealthy. And, and ultimately, the greatest desire is not that the unbelieving spouse would stop pornography. The greatest desire is that the unbelieving spouse would become a believer. Right, so that's the prayer, is that there's just a, a recognition of the power of the gospel in those moments. And then I would say, as a, as a believer who'd be wrestling with those things, bring other people in. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult journey uh, with a lot of different challenges that are unpredictable. So have a community around you that is deeply committed to loving, praying, and supporting uh, that journey together. Uh, would you add something to that? If you think yeah, about I think, that? you know, Sometimes in that scenario, if one person is an unbeliever, they don't really want to hear the Bible argument or the God argument or the faith argument. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things we've touched on is there is kind of just a growing movement against pornography mm -hmm. uh, because it is sh sh being exposed far and wide that is extraordinarily exploitative. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it is increasing trafficking and abuse and all those things and also just the damage it does to the brain. So maybe that's a starting point too, like, hey, Look at this study that shows the addictive, destructive qualities uh, just on your brain, not, not an argument from faith. And then also, you know, a starting point, you know, depending on the situation, is just expressing that you're not okay with it. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's got to be the beginning. Like, hey, you might think this is okay, me as your spouse. I do not think this is okay. And so kind of beginning that conversation. Yeah, just the ex expressing the hurt and the harm that's associated with those things. So let's say this, and this is um, uh, probably more common than I think we would be aware of, but how do I handle it if both of us are believers, uh, but we have used pornography together to help our intimacy? So at times, there's situations where a married couple, in terms of being able to generate a desire for arousal and intimacy with one another, have used pornography to be a source of moving them to intimacy, and they're now trying to think through, okay, not okay, good, not, not good, bad. How, when we think about framing that biblically, um, where, where do we begin? Yeah, I think, you know, how, one of the things I, I would say and might repeat with a couple of the other questions, you know, I think God gave us sex to glorify him by delighting in our spouse, mm. and I wouldn't invite other people into your bedroom. That's right. Um, I think that's just a starting point. And um, it might yield uh, a temporary sense of excitement, 
but it's going to take you someplace you don't want to go. Mm. And so I would definitely, if that's a, a scenario, I would encourage anybody to, to end that quickly. Mm. And then also, I would also encourage the counseling piece that there's something behind that of, of this going on in the relationship of, of why you aren't delighting in each other and some things you probably need to work through. And so I wouldn't um, use a, a temporary fix It'll be far more destructive in the in the long run mm -hmm. um, to to help generate some excitement in the bedroom. Mm -hmm. I, I think the the consequences of, of that long term will be severe. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, uh, I think God's given us sex to glorify Him by delighting in our spouse. Mm -hmm. And you know, kind of like the Proverbs passage from last week: "Drink water from your own well." Like I wouldn't invite other other people, other things into your bedroom. Yeah, I think Hebrews tells us not to defile our marriage bed. And so, uh, what we've talked about before in this whole series is that um, access to pornography is it compounds itself. So there's this initial entry point where it 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 um, it seems. Uh, less significant, but then novelty increases and all of those things. And so what, what helps at one time begins to diminish our sexual drive until the excitement is accelerated in those regards. So we're always looking for something more in that regard. And ultimately, at the end of the day, it becomes very distortive and destructive in the very real primary relationship that the Lord has given us in terms of uh, a husband and a wife. And so um, certainly I would say, uh, you know, this is one of those moments of moving away from that, realizing that, that that's not really a solution and it's certainly not a God-given solution. It's us trying to figure out how we can solve sexual challenges in the context of a marriage relationship that we, we're not called to solve. It's, it's God intruding into those ways where we can begin to grow in intimacy and love for one another. Um, and so, yeah, it would be something that I, I would say would be, um, you know, e even initially, but even long-term, something that would be unwise and destructive in terms of the context of the marriage relationship. So we talked a lot about bringing things to the light and confessing. Let's just say that the Spirit of the Lord worked, and we're praying that He has, in numerous ways to bring about a conversation between a husband and a wife um, over these last six weeks or even in the next six weeks. And the question is, I'm hurt because my spouse just confessed to using pornography. I'm mad and I'm hurt. How do I think about moving forward towards forgiveness? So how do we process someone who's now willing to come to a place of confession and admit that this has been a part of their experience, which is a surprise to the spouse, and now the woundings begin to take place? Unfortunately, I, I know of a, of a couple of scenarios where I've seen it in the marriage, mm. and that grieves my heart. Um, and I think there could be this, this fear and timidity that... Um, you know, everything was fine until I was honest and then it messed everything up. Mm -hmm. uh, I do think it, it will be imperative for honesty. So both on hurt and anger. Um, but I, my hope would be in that scenario that the spouse that's hurt and angry and can be open about those things would also um, see a path forward. Mm -hmm. That there is um, an alternative to just calling it quits that um, there's, not, there's not something that Jesus can't redeem, uh, both for your good and to restore um, what's been broken. And so I, I, would, I would pray for, um, even if it's a small glimmer, that, there, that there's hope that somebody decided to be honest. Now, I know that doesn't take away the, the pain and the hurt in those moments. And so once again, inviting others in, um, you, just friendships into counseling, whatever it might be, um, I, would, I would just... Um, 
pray and ask that you're willing to contend for that relationship and not just hang it up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think he's right. It, it takes effort and intentionality. And so, uh, you know, the, the fear uh, of confessing is associated with the fear of losing the things that are most important to you. But those things have been mildly diminished already by using pornography. So you get this mixture of things where um, secrecy is not a solution, hiding not a solution, um, and yet it seems to, to be the default because it's safer. So I get it. The act of confession is, an, is a risk. It's an act of faith and obedience towards how God is calling us to be open with one another. Um, and then for forgiveness is not a decision that's made in a moment in time and moved on from. Forgiveness is a journey. And so that journey is critical for us to, to see how the Lord can develop and, and deepen the intimacy between that couple. Um, and so just as Jared had said, we've both been experienced where it, it has ended the marriage. But we've also seen even throughout this series where a confession of those things has actually deepened. Uh, the marriage, and it's just because of the move of the gospel to help us understand that each and every one of us is um, recklessly and by default and by nature sinful, and we are all in need of forgiveness that we don't deserve. And so, if we can come to that standpoint, we can move forward with honesty. Now, that doesn't diminish the hurt, nor does it diminish the reality of what's going on, but it's a commitment to allow God to be the God of the journey rather than us just allowing either pornography or the hurt to be what dictates our story um, for sure. So, let's say this we're both believers. How do I help a spouse who is struggling with pornography? So, let's say it's been open, there's been forgiveness, but there's this consistent, uh, consistent, even in moments, setbacks in the context of a relationship between a husband and a wife. Um, what does that journey look like to walk together as, as a married couple? Yeah, I think, you know, hopefully you view your marriage as a partnership, so you're not on opposing sides, you're, you're working in it together. And so I would hope there would be um, a high degree of collaboration and just um, yeah, helpfulness, I think it is a good word. Um, you know, we've tried to give you a lot of things the past couple of weeks of what to step into mm -hmm. as far as, you know, accountability and honesty and all those things. And so if you're, we're both believers, you know, I think you could encourage your spouse in that regard to the things we've talked about. Mm -hmm. You know, go to men's group, go to women's group, invite others in, tell people about your struggle, maybe get some counseling. And then the practical things too, you know, I, I talked about, you know, if we're getting rid of things, that is an inconvenience. And I would just say as a spouse, be willing to get rid of anything that might be a stumbling block for your significant other. And so, uh, yeah, if y'all need to downgrade smartphones to flip phones, if you need to get rid of cable, if you need to get rid of some of these things, I would just say be, be willing to face the inconvenience. Um, for the sake of your, your spouse's soul and for the good of, good of your marriage. And, and so, yeah, I, I would hope you would view it like a partnership. And I, I know that's difficult. You know, um, you know, a lot of the safeguards I've set up in my own life, a lot of them are contingent on my spouse. So like passwords and things like that. And sometimes I do feel like, oh, I don't want to burden Emily. But, you know, honestly, she's been more than willing to, to help take some of those log literally, literally logistical questions of, yes, I can keep all your passwords for you. And that's um, such a... Um, a, an incredible thing to have a, a partner in this, um, to strive towards Jesus together in all the areas of our life and to work together in anything I can do to help her fight sin, I'm going to do, and, and vice versa, she's there for me to help me fight sin I struggle with. So, um, yeah, partnering in it together. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think, uh, I think even for, for single uh, guys and gals who, who aren't married, 
um, one of the frameworks that I think both Jared and I would give is that, that we're all aware of the places that we tent, are tempted, those, those moments, those means, in those regards. So here's a recommendation that I just want you to throw in the backlog of your mind, is that you confess the struggle before you have to confess the sin. So what I mean by that is that you know, you know, I know, when we're being tempted. We know the places that we tend to be tempted, and we know the areas in which we're drawn, whether it's being alone, whether it's looking for different things, whether it's going into these environments. As the struggle begins to mount, that's when you begin to make the phone call, if you're single, to an accountability partner or friend that loves you, that can just walk through, praying through that struggle and discussing it so that you can interrupt the struggle before it becomes a sin. Because the struggle is not the sin. Right? And so certainly we need to confess the sin when it happens, but back the train up and realize that when we're being tempted and assaulted by the opportunities that present us, confess the struggle before we have to confess the sin. And I think across the board, that tends to be helpful, even in the midst of a, a, a marital relationship, if we're saying, hey, this is a, somehow in some way, there's just this Difficulty, whether it's stress with work or challenges in my own, how I view myself or my own insecurities, seem to really be impeding on me today, and I'm really having a tough time. If you're able to, the, a spouse is so much more, it's so much less wounding to confess that there's a struggle happening than it is after we've already taken the struggle into our own hands and moved to the area of sin. So confess the struggle before we confess the sin would be just a, a way to think through those things uh, in my mind. Would you add anything to that? Or? No, I think that's real good. Okay. And I would encourage, it's tough, yeah. but yeah, that is a, a much better road in conversation than once you've already jumped into some things that you can't get out of. Yeah. All right, question number four. Uh, Jared and I were going to rock, paper, scissor for this, but uh, we decided that we're both going to try and handle this. And the question really, I think, is probably one of those things that's on many people's mind is that is it okay for, is masturbation okay for a believer? So I think some of y'all have words you won't hear in church bingo going. You probably <laughs> yeah, just were right. able to cross, yeah. finish okay. that out. Right yeah, there. yeah. And I'm not sure how frequently that, that word will be brought up again. But the question really is, what, what, what do we, how do we wrestle with thinking through this context of, of um, masturbation or self-pleasure um, uh, in, in any environment? Is it okay for um, a, a believer to, to engage in? Yeah, I think that whoever said it really set us up for in any context. Right, right. Because I, I think you could come up with all these different hypothetical scenarios uh, to somehow justify it. I, I would say... As a general rule, I would say no. So kind of going back to our definition that God has given us sex to glorify him by delighting in your spouse. Mm -hmm. And so I know we can get into the weeds about, you know, business trips and think, you know, you could try to figure out some type of scenario where this is okay. But, but ultimately, I would definitely say if, if you were a single person, an unmarried person, then, then no, it's engaging in a sex act, outside, sex act outside the bounds of marriage. And so that's something... God uh, prohibits and is for our good. Um, celibacy is celebrated uh, by the scriptures uh, in the New Testament writings. And so it is something that grows us in dependence and closeness with Jesus. And so I, I would definitely say as a general rule, no. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that, so we're talking about, um, you know, again, the, the subterranean issue, the heart issue is, is really what we have to engage in is, uh, or ask ourselves the question is, is why? Like, what, what moves us to thinking that, uh, or, or is propelling us to engage in this activity? Um, and, and, and certainly the Bible describes lust as, as a sin, something that departs from the perfect will of God. 
Um, but there's other components to it too, like in the midst of the struggle, we realize that God is the source of our provision, and that provision isn't us providing for ourselves, but him providing for us. And so we start to sort of take control and make decisions on our own to be able to do those things because we feel like things are really difficult or things aren't happening the way that we think that they should happen. And so we end up trying to in, engage in those realities as a, as a temporary solution to uh, a hunger or an appetite that's existing inside that seems to be at times insatiable. So wh- where do we go for scripture in that? So there's a couple of things that I would want to point you to to just consider. So when we talk about pornography, that word itself is actually a biblical word that comes from uh, the Old Testament. And the, the word itself in Greek is called porneia. And it, it involves so much more than uh, pictures or videos. It just has Leviticus 18 has all of these sexual laws that just lay out all of these things that are departures from God's perfect will. And so God has created sex again for his glory to made in the context of covenant marriage. And so engaging in any sexual activity outside of that is awakening an appetite for things and providing for things outside of the, the, the perfect will of God that he's provided for us. So Song of Solomon, probably the most explicit, you know, kind of R-rated book in the Bible, talking about these relationships, and it uses that term, don't awaken love before it's time. And so a lot of times we use that as pastors in the context of uh, engaged couples, right, that are uh, in the process of preparing to get married. And here's what regularly we hear, like, we're going to be married anyway, why can't we just have sex? and all of those things. It's not time. Covenant marriage is the context in which after that covenant ceremony, God has allowed the freedom to be expressed in that, that relationship. But I think it's true even for those of us who are single or, or walking through areas of um, divorce or being a widow or any of those components. There's just that reality of, of awakening that love outside of that relationship can be somewhat um, challenging or a, a distortion of what the Lord really wants us to be involved in. Now, again, this is one of the areas where uh, there are differences of opinion on those things, and that's why we want to talk about the heart motivation. What's going on that's moving us in those directions to want to be able to, to take things or to, to, to self-pleasure in that regard um, rather than allowing God to be the one that's in control? So um, if, if we find in any context of sin looking for ways to do it that justify it, maybe that's not so healthy, right? I mean, it's, we, we want to be able to make sense of why we should be able to do whatever sin we want to do when we know really that God is moving us to a place of, of, of protection and trust in him. Um, so that's where we would stand is, is it's, it's, it's wise, I think, and biblically healthy to protect ourselves from those things in that regard. Um, so... All right, so when we talked about the Pornea laws, even in Leviticus 18 and different, even Ephesians talks about it, Corinthians has a lot of different aspects. So is there any connection in your mind between pornography and the vast amount of sexual confusion that we see in our day and age? So we live in a world where this is the hot button topic, right? There's so many challenges with regards to sex, identity, confusion. How does pornography or how has, in your mind, pornography um, uh, added to the confusion that we see in our day and age? Yeah, I think, you know, there's nothing new under the sun, but I, I would say it's accelerated things. And even you can see just through, I mean, they do statistical analysis of the content of certain videos. There's different realms of life. I would say that they have directly correlated, you know, the effect pornography has had, you know, definitely for, for children that are exposed at a young age, uh, what they're seeing is not normative sex. It's, mm-hmm. 
aggressive, it's violent, um, it's a lot of acts that wouldn't be typical for most people's bedrooms. And so if you're a 10-year-old and that's your education, um, there is definitely going to be a trickle-down effect. And so now, you know, we're 20 years into most people having internet in their home, and it has had a lot of effects. And so, um, you know, I saw one study that said, you know, 80% of pornographic videos depicted some type of aggression towards females. Mm -hmm. um, I, I know I've, I've read some studies on men seeking sex act uh, through prostitution that they say they would like something that they saw in pornographic videos. Um, it has an effect of normalizing deviancy mm -hmm. um, because there is this, um, um, the, the novelty factor that once your brain gets accustomed to this overload, it needs something crazier and crazier and crazier to keep getting that stimulation that your brain kind of craves. Mm -hmm. And so, um, um, yeah, it's, it's having, uh, I would say, a disastrous effect. And so if you haven't followed the news, you know, we didn't mention it. Uh, right now, there's some massive court cases against the largest pornographic website on the Internet uh, because they had over 10 million videos on their website that were not verified and thousands of them depicted sexual assaults or children that were underage. Um, and so you do see kind of these broader movements throughout culture that have kind of latched onto different things. Um, if, if you start to see this term might be bounced around, um, uh, an MAP or a minor attracted persons, uh, there's a, a movement and group that's trying to get essentially pedophilia uh, kind of mm -hmm. listed as a, a normative sexual you know, um, persuasion. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'd say a lot of those things are, are you can trace back to um, that culture quit making anything taboo. You know, kind of sexual revolution in the 60s, throw off all the mores, all the boundaries, and just whatever you feel, go for it. And I think we're reaping the reward of that now, um, that there is, a, I would say, a lot of um, very, to me, negative and um, damaging trends and just things taking place mm -hmm. in culture that I think pornography, you know, there's nothing new, but I would say it's been an accelerant mm -hmm. um, to a lot of uh, negative cultural trends and just a lot of a lot of damage. And so I, I do think that's why there is kind of uh, a growing uh, backlash against some of these things. I actually uh, saw an article this morning about how you know where evangelical Christians and the feminist camp can come together to um, uh, attack some of these issues because it is. Um, by and large, uh, a lot more uh, degrading and uh, damaging to, to women and young girls um, mm -hmm. um, as the objects of uh, a lot of sin. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, it's just diminished uh, so much of how we view the image of God in, in other people. Um, and the image of God is meant to uh, see the work and creative ability of God to be glorified, and now it's been distorted for pleasure of someone else. Uh, and so that objectification of humanity and God's creation uh, has just innumerable effects on how we relate with one another as, as much as, as we realize that, like we've said before, uh, any entry, uh, no entry into pornography is innocuous, right? It, it's an entry, and then all of a sudden it compounds, and so you become desensitized to the gravity of, of what's taking place, and it, it really elevates this place of, of fantasy above reality and, and really then begins to just feel like everything is normal if that's normal. Uh, and so, um, you know, I think uh, the industry itself, um, it works on just sheer human primal instincts. <laughs> And so you move, and then you distort, and when you distort, you make it normal, and when you make it normal, then you just make it acceptable, and everyone can engage in these things feeling like it, it, it really hurts no one, uh, and that's just frankly not true. 
Um, you know, even when we talk about uh, sin and self-pleasure and sexual immorality, you know, 1 Corinthians tells us that it's a sin against our own bodies. And so harm's being done. And so the goal is to say, how do we move the gospel into these places where we can compete against the shame, but we can also communicate about the reality of the gravity of, of the situation that, that is uh, in front of us. So this is why this next question is critical. And I know we're, we're a little bit short on time. And so there's a couple things that I'll combine these next two questions. But because of pornography and even the sexual confusion that we experience in this world and the challenges of how uh, our minds are even grappling with how the Bible calls us to think about sex and sexual intimacy, uh, it, it, found its, it finds its way into marriage a lot. And so here's one of the ways that it does that. My spouse wants to engage in intimate activities that I'm uncomfortable with, and I feel pressured to. How can we as Christian, how can we as a Christian couple talk about what's okay and not have it be an argument? So you can hear already, right, that there's a weight in some of the aspects of, of how an intimate relationship exists where it feels like, um, I, I want to do this, and this person's withholding, and you're restricting access to these things, and you're not doing this, and I want this, and you're doing it. So we begin to then uh, force the other person or label the other person as either somebody who's kinky or someone who's approved. And so you have all of these things that begin to then just devolve the conversation in very difficult and challenging ways. So when we think biblically about how to handle uh, a covenant biblical marriage relationship in the bedroom... Um, what are some frameworks that we would use to engage in this conversation? Um, I think I would say as a, as a blanket statement, if you um, pressure or coerce your spouse into doing something that makes them uncomfortable, you've defiled your bedroom, mm -hmm. um, and you need to repent of that. Mm -hmm. And I would also, it kind of goes back to, you know, what's the motivation behind it? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I would say for a lot of scenarios, it, it might be some exposure to pornography that's fueled something in your brain that you're mm -hmm. trying to then live out. Mm -hmm. And I would say that's something you need to repent of and get right with the Lord. Mm -hmm. And so I, I would be very um, definitely, you know, in this question specifically, it talks about believers. Um, once again, I, I hope you view your marriage as a partnership of working together and mm -hmm. not on opposite ends trying to get yours essentially. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I hope that would extend uh, to the bedroom of enjoying mm -hmm. uh, that pleasure and that passion God's given married couples uh, of working at it together. But that's within uh, comfort levels, and that is working together and not just um, mm -hmm. making requests for yourself. Yeah, I think that's right. The last thing that you would want is for the person that you've engaged in a covenant marriage relationship with after you've engaged in sexual intimacy to feel dirty. Something's off, right? And so when that, that component is taking place, there's a level of communication and, and honesty where, you know, even Philippians, right, consider others better than ourselves extends into the marriage relationship, that there's a, a level of service and value and joy in highlighting the work of Christ in another person that they, when, when we move it to the place where they feel objectified um, and just as an instrument for someone else's pleasure, um, the, the covenant relationship and that mutual uh, connection has been distorted in some way. And so walking through why of those needs so significant, what, what sort of things are coming out, what, where's the resistance, what, what else is happening underneath, because this is just a fruit or a symptom of a deeper issue that's inside, which then leads to the next question that I think is, is really pertinent and really challenging as we wrestle with uh, this moving into a place of, 
um, kind of uh, abuse in the context of a, of a relationship between a husband and a wife. So the question is, is in the context of a Christian marriage, how do I know if I'm being abused and how do I deal with the trauma of having been abused? So now, now we, we look at this scenario and realize that things have gotten to a point where uh, manipulation, coercion, uh, some level of selfish activity has taken place. Uh, statistics are um, nationally across the board that one in four women have navigated some level of abuse. So we think about our environment, and it's not hard for us to expect that there are some of you here. And so we want to deal with this very delicately and very biblically, but we want to tell you that God sees, God loves, and God knows, and wants to be able to bring this to light to find healing and redemption. Now, it's not to say that there aren't cases where men have potentially been abused. 85% of the cases are women. And so that's why we begin to talk about these things. Here's what I would say if we could define abuse. This is what I'd say about abuse. Abuse is defined as a pattern of coercion, controlling, or punishing behaviors, seeking to control or insert dominance over the other person. So here's where we need to think about, because we've been in situations like this numerous times before, where we start to move forward and dealing with abuse that's taken place in the context of a marriage situation. And a lot of times, uh, the word that gets thrown around is submission, right? Um, you know, this is, I'm the, the leader of my home. There's an expectation that this person should engage in these things, and they're just resistant. They don't respect me. All of that language is just uh, kind of a, an, an overarching reality of not dealing with really what's going on inside the person's heart. So here's what I'd say, and this is just practical biblical evidence from Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5 says this, verse 11, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of these things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. If you are concerned, even in the slightest, that there are aspects of abuse, whether verbal, spiritual, financial, or emotional, that have taken place in the context of your relationship, you need to talk to someone about it. If there's a gut level of concern that something is just off, the goal is not to mar the reputation of your spouse or to... Um, just manufacture ideas about something that's going on that's not really going on. You sense something's off. You need to be able to communicate that in a safe environment where people will choose to partner with you and your spouse to find how the gospel can redeem and transform that situation. It does not fix itself. It does not go away. And things don't get better over time. If you're in an abusive relationship, things don't just get better. There needs to be a level of willingness to open ourselves up to talk about these things. So we here as a church are infinitely open to have individuals come alongside and partner with you about what it looks like to deal with the trauma, the reality of what's expressed if you've been oppressed or abused and how we can find redemption in those situations. Um, but... Uh, hoping that if you just keep your head down and are silent and abide by the rules of your spouse that's an abuser, 
at the end of the day, the reality is, is they're only going to want more. And so we need to take the time to realize that if something's off, bring someone else in to help confirm that something's off, but then walk through the reality of what needs to happen because there needs to be an exposure of that sin because it's not going to fix itself. Um, and the trauma that you've navigated is seen by our Lord Jesus Christ. He cares about every wound and challenge that you've experienced and wants to draw you to himself. And so certainly he is always going to be enough for you. But part of the act of faith is realizing that part of his provision is the people around you to move away from that environment that is taking advantage of a covenant relationship and marring it in incredible and destructive ways. Would you add anything to that? I mean, do you have any thoughts about... Well, I think, you know, one of the part of the questions is how do I know? And I do think you, you kind of touching on it. Uh, I think if there's a scenario where you would like to invite someone in and the other person's just shutting that down mm -hmm. and won't allow it on any level. Now, I'm not saying like, hey, I want to gossip to my friend about everything. But if like, no, you can't talk to your friend. No, you can't talk to your family. No, you can't talk to your pastors. No, you can't talk to a counselor. It, that's the, the control and coercion we're talking about. Mm -hmm. And because we do have things that hopefully, you know, and who you talk to matters. And so getting your spouse's permission for sensitive topics is, is important. And I would encourage, but if it's like, no, this can't leave us, mm. that's a sign mm -hmm. um, about either maybe how an argument progressed or like, hey, I'm not happy with the way you're treating me or, hey, this has occurred and I'm, I'm not okay with that. Can we invite somebody in to give us some context mm -hmm. if the answer is always no? That's a sign. Like that's a, that's a, that's a bad flag right there, I would mm -hmm. say. Yeah, and, and physical violence, obviously. If there's any physical activity that's taken place where there's marks that are left, um, uh, emotional abuse where there's a tearing down or a degrading of another person, um, uh, an isolation and a removal of any sort of financial cooperation so that one person is just completely managing those things, those are indicators that there's a centralization of what's taking place. And something needs to uh, something needs to change. There needs to be a, an invitation of people into that scenario. Um, and so, w what we would say to you is, um, uh, we're in. If that sounds like you or something that you've been through, or maybe you've navigated the trauma of abuse and still now in the process of figuring out what healing looks like, we're in. We count it a privilege. If anybody enters into a, a partnership ministry here at the church and has somebody that they want or allowing us the privilege of walking through this with them, we count it just such a huge honor to have a front row seat to the work that the Lord is doing. Um, but but we're, we're, I mean, I, I'm not um, opposed to begging. Don't do this alone. Don't just take it. Um, allow uh, the work of God through his family to walk through this with you. Uh, and if, if maybe on the flip side, you have been an abuser or you've oppressed, again, when we talk about shame and we talk about this being a place for the home for the hurting, if that has been your story, we say we're in too. We will walk through the truth of the gospel with you, whatever side of the fence you're on, allowing Jesus to be the source of freedom, healing, and redemption in those situations. My guess is this might have generated more conversations, more questions, which is great. Feel free to continue to reach out to Jared or myself or any of the elders will be available to do that. Um, but uh, would you have any final thoughts?
closing thoughts? Yeah, I was just, I was really feeling uh, gratitude this morning um, for you, our, our church family. Uh, you know, as we launched into this, uh, there was a lot of trepidation, but uh, just a profound sense of these are things that need to be talked about in the church. Uh, but I know, um, I'm sure it's felt a bit like a marathon the past six weeks <laughs> of, hey, this is going to get hit every week. So take a deep breath. Uh, you know, we're going to hit a new season next Sunday. But I am just very grateful um, that you're still coming. and um, <laughs> It's not an empty church. Yeah. yeah. You know, uh, I, I know sometimes we can come to church to get the warm fuzzies. And, uh, you know, we, we want to... We don't want to shy away from hard issues because we don't think the gospel does. And so I'm just really grateful to be a part of this church and uh, for having the support and the little conversations that have occurred the past couple weeks. Um, and, and just know um, it's it's through care, it's through the work of the Lord that mm -hmm. we wanted to um, have some uncomfortable conversations and, and talk about things that we know are affecting people. And so mm -hmm. we want to we want to bring it to the feet of Jesus. And so, yeah, I just felt a lot of gratitude um, coming up this morning to, to finish off this series. Yeah. We're, we deeply love you guys and grateful to journey together. So let me, let me pray for us.